So this little first article is about solar panels built from waste crops that can make energy without direct light. In a twist for solar energy, a Filipino inventor has created resinous panels that harvest solar energy out of recycled vegetables, and it can work even when it's cloudy, rainy, or out of direct sunlight. It turns out that there are extremely sensitive chemicals in vegetables that turn UV light from the sun into visible light, which can in turn be used to generate electricity from photovoltaic cells. When placed between the glass of a double-glazed window, the different colored panels push sunlight into the edges of the window pane where the PV cells then turn it into electricity, enough to charge two smartphones. But if used to clad an entire building, it can power major systems as well as delight onlookers with its Andy Warhol-like usage of bright colors. Made from upcycled vegetable waste, the innovation won its creator, 29-year-old Carvey Aaron Magu, the 2020 Dyson Foundation Sustainability Award. Magu called it Aureus, as its multicolored nature looks like the Aurora Borealis. Unlike the bulky solar panels we all think of, Aureus is a vegetable polymer sheet and can be bent, molded, and clamped onto pretty much any shape. Furthermore, they don't need UV light to strike them directly. Harvesting is plants do from the UV light through clouds. If placed on a roof entirely in shadow, they can still generate energy if the UV light was bouncing off, say, a nearby skyscraper or field. We're also looking to create curved plates for use on electric cars, airplanes, and even boats, Magu told the Dyson Foundation in a 2020 interview. Aureus has the chance to bring solar energy capture closer to people, in the same ways computers were only used by the government or the military, and now the same technology is in our smartphones, I want solar energy harvesting to be more accessible. He says that there is nothing stopping the base polymer from being used to make thread for clothing, allowing people to generate electricity as they walk around. Designed to be as low impact as possible, Megu sought not just vegetable waste, but also crops destroyed in storms and typhoons. The panels come in red, orange, yellow, green, and blue, with a suitable and natural blue coloring agent remaining undiscovered. That's it for this one. This next one I thought was pretty cute. It's about a pot of whales adopting a young stray narwhal, and they may have little narwhals. It's rare to find a narwhal as far south as Canada's St. Lawrence River, but it does occasionally happen. But when a narwhal travels so far south and returns every year amid a pod of beluga whales, rare hardly fits the billing. Marine biologists in Quebec have had the pleasure of studying this fascinating phenomenon, a narwhal traveling, eating, and living with a pod of young male beluga whales as they cruise down the province's famous river. Drone footage indicates this unique black sheep is a male and well-fed, indicating that he's been adopted into the pod. There are a lot of social interactions between the narwhal and the others, said Robert Michaud, president and scientific director of the Group for Research and Education on Marine Mammals. He is one of the crew. He is one of the buddies in there. Graham has been studying this pod of belugas who have returned every year since 2016 and believe that they are now reaching sexual maturity, when they will venture out to find a pod of female support. Michaud is fascinated to see if the adopted narwhal has integrated enough to breed and produce a hybrid known colloquially as a narluga, though GNN feels an opportunity has been missed to call them narwhals. In 2019, an Ontario-slash-Denmark team of researchers confirmed the existence of narlugas 
through analysis of a skull received by a hunter-gatherer in Greenland, lacking the long horn of a narwhal, which is actually a canine tooth, yet possessing characteristics of both animals. It gave some forensic evidence to known first-hand accounts of hybrids between the species. It was a first-generation hybrid, meaning the parents were a beluga and a narwhal, particularly a narwhal mom and a beluga dad, Paul Spizak from Trent University, Ontario, told CBC in 2019. The narluga was bigger than both animals, similar to the way a liger, the result of a tiger and lion breeding, is also bigger than both. The St. Lawrence River has narwhal has a lot to learn if it's to secure itself a beluga lover, since the whales communicate with a vast array of vocalizations unknown to their horned cousins. However, it's not clear to Michaud whether or not the narwhal knows itself to be a narwhal or knows itself to be a beluga. What does a narwhal know about narwhals? And would he know about the belugas? Well, these are fascinating questions, Michaud said on the CBC radio show, The Current. That's it for this one. Working in your off hours can harm your motivation and enthusiasm for work. The traditional 9 to 5 week has been replaced in many cases by hybrid hours that fit your needs, but at what cost if you do too much work? But working a non-traditional schedule and checking in during all hours of the day, night, and weekends is not necessarily beneficial for the modern workforce, according to new Cornell research. Even if you're still working 40 hours a week, you're working during time that you've mentally encoded as time off or as time that should be for vacation, and that can make you feel suddenly that your work is less enjoyable, said Caitlin Woolley, Cornell's SC Johnson College of Business. We had this feeling that sometimes the ability to work when we want to could also impact how we feel about our work, Woolley said. So she and Laura Gierge, assistant professor of behavioral science at London School of Economic, started examining the effects that off hours working or studying has on job satisfaction and motivation. In one study, the researchers approached Cornell students studying in a campus library on President's Day. They reminded themselves they reminded half the participants that they were studying during a federal holiday. The other half did not receive this reminder. Then they me- they then measured students' intrinsic motivation for their schoolwork, asking them how enjoyable, <sighs> sorry, engaging, interesting, and fun they found their materials to be. Students who were reminded the day was a federal holiday reported that their work was 15% less enjoyable. In another study, the researchers measured whether a simple calendar, pro- calendar reminder on a federal holiday would alter full-time workers' perception of work enjoyment. They found that work was 9% less enjoyable on the holiday Monday compared with a typical Monday, despite engaging in similar work-related activities on both days. In the third study, participants were surveyed on Tuesday with no reminder it's a typical workday, then again on Saturday. Some participants were reminded that it was a Saturday, a weekend day, while others were given no reminder. Both groups reported lower levels of work satisfaction on the weekend day, although the effect was stronger in the reminder group. Willie and Gurge think part of this discrepancy has to do with the idea of collective time off, having free time when friends and family are also off. The real benefit of time off on the weekend or on holidays is that it's just not just that I have time off, but my family and friends have off too. Willie told the Cornell Chronicle, and so you can, so one thing that we suggest for managers is can you create a weekend shift so people feel like they're in it together with the other people? 
The idea of work-life balance, setting boundaries between work and play times, has been a priority for many employers and employers employees recently. Woodley, Woolley said, it can be hard for workers who feel pressured to achieve to commit to striking that balance. It's hard sometimes for workers who aren't in a position of power, whereas I think... Oh, sorry. Managers have the responsibility to create that environment for their employees, she said. I do think that people are becoming more aware of the importance of that and shaping their jobs and their lives, life choices to allow for it. That's all for this one. This is another sustainability article that I thought looked... I looked at the picture and then... After reading the, the title, I thought it was even more interesting. So giant floating solar panels, panel flowers replace coal in Korea and become tourist destination. South Korea's total land surface is not large. Instead of clearing what little real estate there is for renewable energy projects, 92,000 solar panels in the shape of plum blossoms now float on the gently bobbing surface of a southern reserve. The solar project on the 17-mile-long reservoir in Hapcheon is able to generate 41.5 megawatts, enough to provide power for 60,000 people, more than the total population of the country. Floating solar photovoltaic... The fire alarm's going off again. Okay, and I'm back. So, um... Floating solar photovoltaic is becoming a go-to method of renewable energy production in Asia. In a recent speech by President Moon Jae-in outline floating solar as an important part of total renewables plan of a total renewables plan for the generation of 9.4 gigawatts of electricity in South Korea or about the same as nine nuclear reactors the three peaks of Huangamashan mountain reflected on the Hapcheon lake form the shape of a plum blossom Sprawled on the surface of this lake are photovoltaic panels that also resemble plump blossoms from an ink and wash painting, said President Moon. Hanwa, the company in charge of constructing the blossom panel arrays, suggests that demand for floating PV is expected to rise in the coming years, not only in Asia. Thailand has already built the world's largest floating PV solar panel plant, which is about the size of 70 soccer pitches. Pairing PV solar panels to water sources like canals, ground-level humidity, or reservoirs increase their efficiency by as much as 10%, as the surrounding water helps them remain naturally cooler. Bloomberg reports that they also help decrease hostile algae blooms. $1.4 million, or around 4% of the total financing for the project, was fronted by Hapcheon locals. They were the first to be offered the chance at joining a 20-year 10% annual return investment scheme, which should help generate useful income for elderly residents in an average area in an area where the average age is nearly 60. That's it for this one. For some reason, I'm always drawn to the science articles, so this one is about new cancer therapy completely destroys advanced ovarian and colorectal tumors in six days. A new cancer therapy has completely destroyed advanced ovarian and bowel tumors in just six days. Clinical trials are ex expected to begin in the next few months after results on mice were described as very exciting. Pinhead-sized drug factories were delivered to give continuous high bursts of, of, of a protein that boosts the immune system. 
We just administer once, but they keep making the dose every day, where it's needed until the cancer is eliminated. And co-author Dr. Omid Vaish of Rice University in Houston, Texas, whose family friend died of the deadly disease. Once we determined the correct dose, how many factors we needed, we were able to eradicate tumors in 100% of animals with ovarian cancer and in 7 of 8 animals with colorectal cancer. The tiny beads have a protective shell containing cell en cells engineered to produce interleukin-2. They could be used to fight the most lethal cancer battles, including those of the pancreas, liver, and lungs. They can be implemented sorry, they can be implanted with minimally invasive surgery and could be tested on human patients by autumn so they can get them in hospitals as quickly as possible. For the mixture, the team chose only components that had previously proven safe for humans. The drug-producing beads were placed next to tumors in lab rodents and within the lining of the abdominal cavity, a sac-like lining that supports the intestines, ovaries, and other abdominal organs, and limits exposure elsewhere. A major challenge in the field of immunotherapy is to increase tumor infl inflammation and anti-tumor tumor immunity while avoiding systematic side effects of cytokines and other pro-inflammatory drugs, said co-author Professor Amir Jazari of Texas University. In this study, we demonstrated that the drug factories allow regulatable local administration of interleukin-2 and the eradication of tumor in several mouse models, which is very exciting. Interleukin-2 is a cytokine, a protein the immune system uses to recognize and fight disease, which has been approved as a cancer treatment by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Lead author Amanda Nash, a graduate student in Dr. Vyesh's lab, said the beads provoked the strongest immune response to date. If you give the same concentration of the protein through an IV pump, it would be extremely toxic. With the drug factories, the concentration we see elsewhere in the body, away from the tumor site, is actually lower than what patients need to tolerate the IV treatments, to tolerate with IV treatments. The high concentration is only at the tumor site. Mrs. Nash said it, oh, frick. Mrs. Nash said it opens the door to, to the same general approach to treat cancers of the pancreas, liver, lungs, and other organs. If a different cytokine is needed to target a specific form of cancer, the beads can be loaded with any immunotherapeutic compound. The beads outer shells shields its cytokine producing cells from immune attacks as they are made of materials the immune system recognizes as foreign objects but not as immediate threats. Dr. Reese said, We found foreign body reactions safely and robust robustly turned off the flow of cytokine from the capsule within 30 days. In the research published this week in peer-reviewed journal Science Advances, they also showed they could safely administer a second course of treatment should it become necessary in the clinic. Colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancers, while ovarian is particularly lethal because it is usually only diagnosed in late stages. Avenge Bio, a Massachusetts-based startup co-founded by Dr. Vyesh, has licensed the cytokine factory technology research from Rice. That's it for this one. I thought this one was, uh, not silly, but interesting. Optimistic men have a better shot at less stressful, healthy aging. Finds new study. Don't Worry Be Happy is more than just a song lyric. A growing body of evidence supports an association between optimism and healthy aging. A new study has found that being more optimistic appears to promote emotional well-being by limiting, by limiting how often older men experience stressful situations, like arguments or affecting the way they interpret such stress. This study tests one possible explanation, assessing if more optimistic 
people handle daily stress more constructively and therefore enjoy better emotional well-being, said corresponding author Luina Lee, PhD, clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. Sorry, I, I wish it was Boston College, but it's not. The researchers surveyed for over a decade the same 233 older women, I meant men, 233 older men who had completed an optimism questionnaire. 14 years later, they reported daily stressors along with positive and negative moods on eight consecutive evenings, three times over an eight-year span. The researchers found more optimistic men reported not only lower negative mood, but also more positive mood beyond simply not feeling negative. They also reported having fewer stressors, which was unrelated to their higher positive mood, but explained their lower levels of a negative mood, according to the findings published in the Journals of Gerontology, Series B, Psychological Sciences, and Social Sciences. Studies have increasingly supported the idea of optimism as a resource that may, may promote good health and longevity. An 11-year study completed in 2016 measured the optimism and pessimism of 2,267 men and women over 52 as they aged and found that those who died from coronary heart disease were more pessimistic than average. Another researcher, researcher that examined links between optimism and heart health in 5,100 adults reported in 2015, individuals with the highest level of optimism have twice the odds of being in ideal cardiovascular health compared to their more pessimistic counterparts. A Harvard study looking at nearly 7,000 older adults counted the most optimistic people as having a 73% reduced risk of heart failure over the follow-up period. What caused these associations between optimism and health? Lee said we know very little about the underlying mechanisms. Stress, on the other hand, is known to have a negative impact on our health. So by looking at whether optimistic people handle day-to-day -day stressors differently, our findings add to knowledge about how optimism may promote good health, says Lee, especially as people age. Scientists have developed Oh, sorry. This article is about scientists creating an algorithm that uses re routine eye scans to identify heart attack risk with accuracy of 70 to 80 percent. Scientists have developed an artificial intelligence system that can analyze eye scans taken during a routine visit to an optician or eye clinic and identify patients at a high risk of having a heart attack. Doctors have recognized that changes to the tiny blood vessels in the retina are indicators of broader vascular disease, including problems with the heart. In the research led by the University of Leeds, deep learning techniques were used to train an AI system to automatically read retinal scans and identify those people who, over the following year, were more likely to have a heart attack. Deep learning is a complex series of algorithms that enable computers to identify patterns in data and to make predictions. Writing in the journal Nature Machine Intelligence, the researchers report in their paper predicting in infarction through your retinal scans and minimal personal information that the AI system had an accuracy of between 70% and 80% and could be used as a second referral mechanism for in-depth cardiovascular examination. The use of deep learning in the analysis of retinal scans could revolutionize the way patients are regularly, regularly screened for signs of heart disease, earlier identification of heart disease. Professor Alex Frangi, who holds the Diamond Jubilee Chair in 
Computational Medicine in the School of Computing at the University of Leeds and is a Turing Fellow at the Alan Turing Institute supervised the research. He said cardiovascular diseases, including heart attacks, are the leading cause of early death worldwide and the second largest killer in the UK. This, ca- this causes chronic ill health and, and misery worldwide. This technique opens up the possibility of revolutionizing the screening of cardiac disease. Retinal scans are comparatively cheap and routinely used in many optician practices. As a result of being automated screening, patients who are at high risk of becoming ill could be referred for special cardiac services. This system could also be used to track track early signs of heart disease. The UK Biobank provide data for this study. Chris Gale, professor of cardiovascular medicine at the University of Leeds and a consultant cardiologist at Leeds Teaching Hospital NHS Trust, was one of the authors of the research paper. He said the AI has the potential to identify individuals attending routine eye screening who are at higher future risk of cardiovascular disease, whereby preventive treatments could be started earlier to prevent premature cardiovascular disease. Deep learning. During the deep learning process, the AI system analyzed the retinal scans and cardiac scans for more than 5,000 people. The AI system identified associations between pathology in the retina and changes in the patient's heart. Once the image patterns were learned, the AI system could estimate the size and pumping efficiency of the left ventricle, one of the heart's four chambers, from retinal scans alone, and a large ventricle is linked with an increased risk of heart disease. With information of estimized estimated size of the left ventricle and its pump, pumping efficiency combined with basic demographic data about the patient, their age, and sex, the AI system could make a prediction about the risk of a heart attack over the subsequent 12 months. Currently, details about the size and pumping efficiency of a patient's left ventricle can only be determined if they have diagnostic tests such as echocardiography or magnetic resonance imaging of the heart. Those diagnostics can can be expensive and often only available in a hospital setting, making them inaccessible for people in countries with le- less well-resourced healthcare systems or unnecessarily increasing healthcare costs and waiting times in developed countries. Sven Pleen, British Heart Foundation professor of cardiovascular imaging at the University of Leeds and one of the authors of the research paper said, The AI system is an excellent tool for unraveling the complex patterns that exist in nature, and that is what we have found, the intricate pattern of changes in the retina linked to changes in the heart.